This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Do you have a best friend from school times? Did that friendship survive after school, getting different jobs and living different lifestyles? Other things could test a friendship too, especially if it was in England in the 1930s with class division and the beginning of World War II. This and much more is in Rebecca Starfield's new novel, The Imitator. Welcome back to Published or Not, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Jan. This is lovely to have you back. From a short story writer to young adult writer, and now this absolutely riveting book. (laughs) Well, let's go back to the friendship. It's between two women, Evelyn and Sally. Why was it unusual? So Evelyn begins her life, you know, quite modestly from humble background. She grows up in a small town called Lewis, which is just outside of Brighton in the southern part of England. And Sally Wesley, who who is a girl she meets when she later wins a scholarship and goes away to a prestigious boarding school. Sally is from one of the most wealthy and influential families in the whole of the UK. But despite these sort of differences in their upbringings and their histories, they do develop a very close friendship, which continues right throughout their schooling and university. And Sally becomes in the novel a really important person to Evelyn in the sense that she enables her to find work sort of indirectly um, within MI5, which was which was relatively true to the kind of process of recruitment at the beginning of the war as well. It was it was helpful who you knew in order to get a foot in the door, which maybe is not so different to how things work now to an extent. <laughs> That's true. Also at school, Sally had an older cousin, Julia. What was she like at school? She's a bit of a kind of dark, um, elusive figure. Her, Evelyn knows her very briefly when she's at school. Julia is spelled. But they do have a couple of interactions at school that are really important because they get a sense of, of this young woman who is quite different, who feels uh, constrained within her kind of social upbringing and seems to be looking for something more um, outside of that sort of the constraints of her of her life. Um, and then we meet Julia later when Evelyn is older and she's finished university. And in between that time, Julia has been away to Germany and she actually eloped. It was all quite scandalous. Mm. But she's come home reformed, um, sort of chastened and ready to resume her life again. Or so we think. And um, we, think. You know, we think. And their relationship, their friendship that develops from there is really formative in, in the story. In, at school, Julia recognises the smarts in Evelyn, but Evelyn didn't want to stand out like a Julia did. Evelyn decided to recast herself as a background player, to take a bit part and go unnoticed. The book is called The Imitator. How did Evelyn achieve this act of imitation? When she gets this scholarship to go to this school, you know, it's not a school that she would ordinarily go to and these aren't social circles she would ordinarily move in. But, you know, she gets a scholarship and she's catapulted into this new kind of life. But, you know, as I think so often happens when we think about class, that transition isn't so easy and especially in that time period as well, you know, the stratification of class in the UK is extreme. So she arrives at school somewhat naively and she's sort of picked on and bullied by some of the other girls self and anyway she comes to understand she sees it anyway she has one of two choices she can either remain sort of authentic to herself and to her origins 
and to her class to an extent, or she can begin to adapt and to imitate those around her. And that she chooses the latter, but also it's the kind of environment where actually that that kind of transition and change is is relatively easy if you have the aptitude for it. She has um, deportment classes, elocution mm. classes. You know, she really kind of begins to assume. She goes back, a changed woman, perhaps, to her parents. Well, as her dad says, bring out the best silver. The princess has come to tea. So she distances herself from her parents, but she's got skills. She spoke German and through, as you say, Sally's dad, she got a job at the war office. This is really where well-researched fact becomes fiction because there's a woman called Joan Miller who you acknowledge as something, well, perhaps that Evelyn may have been modelled on. So Joan Miller, who was she? Yeah, so I came about Joan Miller early into my research and she, I mean, she fascinated me in terms of her personality, which is quite, from what I could gather from my research, quite different to Evelyn. But she was involved in these really kind of high stakes, quite extraordinary investigations with MI5 that I have adapted for the novel, where she was, again, kind of really picked and plucked almost from obscurity trained up by her handler within MI5 and then involved in, like I say, these high stakes um, infiltrations of far-right Nazi sympathiser groups that were operating within the UK at that time. Joan Miller's life and those experiences during the war gave me a really fascinating model to adapt to fiction and to use for Evelyn's story and her kind of transition from working in the war office to being recruited within the counterintelligence unit. So through Evelyn, we get an idea of how MI5 works. The unmarked buses that take them to secret locations, sharing offices in a prison. And Evelyn had to sign the Official Secrets Act. So I assume most of this is based on fact too. Yeah, so the MI5, it was really quite extraordinary. They moved offices right, right, it was right sort of before the war started. They were very, what I discovered from my research is that they were very disorganised, even though it seemed that war was kind of quite clearly coming. The intelligence agencies were not prepared, they hadn't recruited enough staff, and they moved into this, what was a men's prison at the time. And so this is just such an unusual setting to create an office sort of environment, which is where, you know, Joan Miller and, and Evelyn too in the novel spend a bit of time doing, doing office work because a lot of that work was sort of set in there. So, yeah, and the unmarked bus, the, there's a scene with the unmarked bus where she travels, she gets a telegram and travels out um, for her kind of first meeting. That's based on, on fact as well from Joan, uh, Joan Miller's memoir. Now, she has a handler called Bennett White, and it is so odd that he has a wild shrew as a pet. I'm wondering, Rebecca Stafford, is that just fiction or was there a character really like that? that yeah, and this is another, you know, where, where fact is stranger than fiction. So Bennett White was based on Joan Miller's handler, um, a man named Maxwell Knight, who was very well known within the intelligence uh, agency. Uh, he actually was used as an inspiration for Ian Fleming's M in the James Bond films. So he was, he was very sort of well known. So he was very eccentric and kept a lot of wild animals in his flat and he had a country house and things like that. But in the end, I had to cut all of those, you know, mm. various animals out and just stick to the shrew, which, you know, serves a kind of function in that particular scene as well. But yeah, he was very unusual. So because of it, 
Evelyn's German speaking skills and because of her abilities, especially how she could have different identities around different people, she's given a case to make friends and embed herself into a pro-Germany movement as a spy. Now, that's all in 1939. The book starts in March 1948. Who was Evelyn having afternoon tea with? That's a young man named Stephen who she's recently encountered. So, yeah, we do the, the novel moves with, between the two time frames. You can tell that she's sort of labouring um, under the effects of the past and we're not quite sure what they are. But Stephen is this kind of <laughs> speck of sunshine in the grey sky. But she's unable, we're not sure at this point why, really to kind of give herself over to this relationship. She's very hesitant, very reticent. Stephen is a really important figure in the novel because he enables her, her to kind of grapple with some of the events of the past. So Stephen wants her to come to Rome with him. She's no, mm. She knows a lot about him and his war history and... What does he know about her? He knows very little because Evelyn mm. is still retaining the, that kind of secret yeah. nature, secretive nature from her spy years, but also she carries a bit of shame or quite a lot of shame. Oh, Julia recognises her at this afternoon tea and comes into the table that Stephen and Evelyn are sitting at and asks very pointed questions about her war years, embarrassing her in front of Stephen and gives her a postcard of a reproduction of a painting, Judith in the Tent of Hello Ferns. Yeah, so this is a Liszt painting, a German painter, which, so Judith was a biblical figure who, um, she was a Jewish a Jewish heroine, basically infiltrated the armed campment of Holophanes. Uh, he was an Assyrian and they were kind of plundering these Jewish settlements and um, insinuated herself into his bed. And when he his guard was down, she kind of had a kind of engaged in a relationship with him, but really it was in order to assassinate him. So when he was asleep, um, after they'd slept together, she chopped off his head. She beheaded him. It's really gruesome as so many of these sort of biblical stories are, but the paintings are you know, sort of quite extraordinary with her, his headless corpse, and she's looking sort of quite defiant. And this painting features in the, in the novel later on and, and mm-hmm. kind of works on that symbolism of what infiltration and betrayal means and to different characters, different points of this story. So it becomes, you know, quite kind of emblematic um, of, of Evelyn's sort of experiences. After Julia gave this postcard to Evelyn, this is a quote from the book, Julia was clutching the back of the chair, her fingers as bloodless as talons. And Julia said, you always did like art, didn't you, Evelyn, and books. Clever as you were, you always thought you were so much cleverer than the rest of us but it didn't quite turn out that way, did it? Oh, Evelyn was so physically shaken by the encounter with Julia, she rang Vincent for help and his words were, well, well, if it isn't Chameleon, and that was her code name, but who was Vincent? So Vincent is an important character in the book. Uh, he's a colleague of Evelyn's at MI5. So he's involved in decryption and they develop a friendship during their, during their time working together because it's a small team. Vincent is originally from Germany. He's naturalised sort of British citizen, but his parents got him out of Germany at the beginning of the 1930s. And he's also Jewish, as Evelyn discovers. Vincent's a character that I suppose educates Evelyn 
on mm. the kind of dark cloud of anti-Semitism that she's quite ignorant about and makes her understand, yeah, yeah, real lives are at stake. We started talking about friendships and often decisions had to be made about betraying your own friends in order to stay undercover. So 1948, Sally had a different time. This is uh, Evelyn's best friend during the war. She got married, she had a baby, and it was eight years after Sally's big wedding at the family manor when she sees Evelyn and she says, you betrayed me and my family, and though I loved you, I can never forgive you for it. And now there is Stephen, a man she cares for, but will he want to know her? Rebecca Stafford, I'd love you to read from page 277, please. Okay. This is Evelyn speaking now. Because I'm so ashamed of what happened, she said, of what I did during the war, and now that shame has taken over and I don't know how to get rid of it. You see, I've pretended to be something I'm not for so long that I have trouble understanding what is real. She squeezed his hand. Except for you. I know you're real, Stephen. You've been real to me from the moment we met. His brow creased and he looked back across the room. I've pushed him too far and he's going to leave, Evelyn thought, panic and despair building once more. He's going to walk away and never return. But then Stephen turned back to her and crossed his long legs. He hadn't walked out. He was still there, still listening, still waiting. He gave her a small nod, permission to continue. Vincent had suggested starting at the beginning, but which one? And how could she make Stephen believe she had become a different person? Because she wasn't sure she was. A different person, that was. And she let out a long, shuddering breath. Evelyn? She had once made the choice to confront the past, and that had required a certain kind of bravery. Evelyn looked inside herself now, searching for the resilience she'd summoned all those years ago. Only this time she would be using it for truth and not for all the nebulous grey found between the lies. She began to talk, and they sat like that, one chair beside the other, Stephen's soft hand in hers, until the sun rose on the new day, washing the dark sky clean. And The Imitator is all about what she told Stephen. And fabulously, fabulously. The Imitator by Rebecca Stafford is a page-turning, shocking World War II spy thriller loosely based on the real-life events of an M15 female agent based in London in the 1930s and 40s. Rebecca Stafford, thank you so much for such an intriguing read. Thank you for having me. And now it's David's turn. I have seen the past and it works with such an aphorism How can we not but be in thrall of the characters in Dennis Glover's novel, Factory 19, who try and recreate the past? So, Dennis, welcome back to 3CR. My pleasure. Great to be back. This novel is almost a reverse engineering of Orwell's Animal Farm. In fact, you do call it a reverse revolution at one stage where... Characters try to create a new utopia in Factory 19. What's going on? Well, the idea of this being a book like Animal Farm actually only came to me when I was just about finished the first draft and I suddenly realised what I'd done. Everyone who's familiar with George Orwell's Animal Farm will know that it's a story about the little people taking over and creating a sort of an Arcadian world for themselves. 
And what I've done in Factory 19 is I've got all of the people who've been dispossessed and whose lives and jobs and other things have been destroyed by the digital economy. I've got them to recreate a factory and create a world that works for them. When, you know, little people had good unionized jobs, secure life, even if you didn't have an education, you had a strong stake in the economy, all of the things that are missing now. So I've tried to recreate that golden world of the past for the working class. But at the same time, there's this hint of things about to go awry because you have descriptions of people with cigarettes hanging from their mouths. You have the oil spill from the freighter. Uh, You have uh, lead in paint. So the reader gets this sense that, well, what's going to happen? Yes, well, I haven't tried to sort of create some sort of like good news fantasy. There were a lot of things about the past that were bad, but there were lots of things about the past that were good. The idea that ordinary people had decent jobs. There were unions that had power. There was a lot less economic inequality. But in trying to create those good things, I've I've had to put alongside them the bad things about the past, the fact that we we didn't live as long, there were diseases that we couldn't cure, like tuberculosis and so forth. The atmosphere was being polluted by coal-fired power stations and, as you said, oil spills and so forth. But there's a sense of nostalgia that you evoke. It's romanticised, but you can see the creeping of other pressures at play. So, for example the factory actually has to increase productivity and more pressure is being applied to the worker. Yes, well, in some ways, it's the story of the unwinding of of the great era for the working class. So if you think of um, Thomas Piketty's famous book, Capital, um, which set the world on fire some years ago, um, it's the story of the glorious 30 years from the late 1940s to the late 1970s when economic growth Um, was strong and the gains from it were distributed fairly amongst people. Now, of course, that couldn't go on forever. The way people thought about the economy changed. There were different international economic pressures that came to bear and slowly but surely that world in which the economy was organised for the benefit of everyone became unpicked. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan came along and picked up these ideas and unwound it all. And even... Factory 19, this little world that I create, finds itself having to try and keep up with some of those pressures, you know, to get economic productivity up so that it could meet its bills and so forth. So, you know, I've tried to create an Arcadia, a golden past, but of course, every golden past has the scenes of its own destruction. Now, our narrator is one Paul Ritchie, a former speechwriter for Prime Minister X, But this starts to mirror your own background a little. So you seem to be investing a lot of yourself into or writing yourself throughout the book, if I can put it that way. Well, you know, I needed a narrator who wrote and and was articulate and had a reason for being in Factory 19. So what I've done is I've created this character called Paul Ritchie and um, Paul Ritchie starts off as a speechwriter in um, Parliament House working for a well-known Prime Minister who we'll call X for legal reasons. And under the pressure, the unrelenting pressure of work that comes from Prime Minister X, but also 
from the way we work today in the computer age, you know, with networking software and constantly ringing mobile phones and pinging emails and text messages and social media and so forth. He has this rather spectacular nervous breakdown that's televised and has to go off basically into um, care in order to recover um, his sanity. And at the end of that recovery of sanity, he finds himself drawn into this new world, Factory 19, which is created for just for people like him who can't survive in the modern digital world. What happens to Richie when he have his, has his nervous breakdown, the doctors diagnose that he has basically mobile phone shock. He can't stand to be around any pinging or, or any digital technology. All he if he, Once he's around there, he starts to you know, have a breakdown. I yeah. think you call it digital proximity anxiety. Yeah, yeah, sort of a, a digital toxic shock. But of course, Factory 19 which is predicated on the idea of going back to, 90, to the year 1948 before the computer um, became widespread is the perfect place for somebody like him where he can find out who he really is, uh, recover his personal strength. But things start to become a little more insidious and there are almost overtones of Orwell's 1984. You have, for example, words of the day. There's an attempt to influence the language which happened in 1984. You have the yeah. digital device police where one has to try and preserve things and prevent these influences coming in from outside. The society is crumbling. Yes, well, if you want to go back and live in the year 1948, you have to think like people in 1948. And to think like people in 1948 you have to recast the language so that it's like 1948. And this, of course, is what Orwell does in 1984, um, where he tries to get rid of all the things that make you think about freedom and so forth and um, creates totalitarian language, which limits your ability to think outside what the party wants you to think. Well, in, in my novel, 1948, um, the language is recast to try and get you to think like it's 1948 so that you... Um, you can't do things which will upset the, um, the world that they've created. But of course, my novel isn't as dark and totalitarian as, as 1984. The community I create is, is a sort of a comic one. This is more of a this is more of a satirical novel and things don't go off perfectly and there's always a bit of fun to be had. And, and one of the fun things I do is is trying to get people to speak like like the 1940s. Um, in some ways, you you can see this this book in in the style of one of those Ealing comedies, you know, carry on type films from you know from the nineteen forties onwards that the British made so well. But also, then there's a sort of political message for today. If I can bring your yes. speech writing past into it and this nostalgia for the past, because we have political forces saying things like make the country great again. What sort of message are you putting out there? Well, you know, Trump's sort of message, his false message to the American people was trying to convince the old working class who've had their lives destroyed by, you know, Reaganomics and so forth, you know, all of those um, mines and factories and so forth in Pennsylvania and other places, completely, you know, shut down, massive unemployment, drug addiction. Um, the Republicans created this class of the dispossessed and then Trump came along and appealed to them on a basis of nationalism saying would make 
America great again. But I want you to think of the character that I've created, Dundas Fawcett, in some ways as the sort of a, an idealised left-wing version of Donald Trump who comes along and says to the little people who've lost their jobs when the factory's shut, um, saying, we're going to make the world great again because I'm going to reopen the factory. So in other words, he's somebody like Donald Trump, a left-wing progressive version of Donald Trump who actually does what he says. He reopens the factories. He brings back the jobs for the little people and tries to create a world made for them, not just some dishonest electoral strategy where Trump came in and said, I'm going to remake the world for all the little people who've missed out, but in fact was just creating the world for him and his wealthy mates. We do, in fact, find out why Dundas Fawcett tries to recreate the past, and it's not necessarily yeah. for some great noble reason, but the reader is actually going to have to find that out for themselves by reading Factory 19. The yeah. last line, of course, or near to last line, is... The Latin phrase et in Arcadia ego. Would you care to offer a translation? Well, and in Arcadia I was. Um, it's, a, it's a famous um, poem that goes back to Renaissance and classical times about this idea of everyone wanting to live in this nostalgic um, world of the past, this uh, Arcadian dream, um, which of course is once existed but is always idealised and is never quite real. Why does Dundas want to go back? Well, look, I'll leave that. I'll leave that to the reader. But there's a there's a strong part of the novel that's about this idea of nostalgia. Now, people think, um, oh, nostalgia. It's just you know this silly hankering for the past that's conservative. But I think that's to misread the idea of nostalgia because you know there are a lot of things about the past that are actually better than today. Even though, as a whole, we're probably better off living today than in the past. There's something about surrendering the past, which opens us up to exploitation, um, which opens us to surrendering um, a lot of things that actually work well for us. You know, if we privilege the future all the time, what we what we tend to do is wipe out a lot of the good things. So I want you to think about think about the university as a good example. Universities were opened up to competition; they were marketized. Um, they were, you know, their workforce was casualised and we were told that this would make our university stronger and better and so forth. But in fact, I reckon that the vast majority of people today would probably think that the universities and the education they gave 30 or 40 years ago was probably better. I certainly think that. I think my education is better than the education my children are getting. I would have uh, to agree with you there, yes. Dennis. Yeah. Yeah. But for so the listener, if yeah. listeners are a Luddite, like myself and yeah. a little resistant to technology, even though we have managed to keep this show published or not alive through technology. The book is Factory 19. The author is Dennis Glover and it's from Black Ink Books. So Dennis, thank you for talking with me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.